0: Wednesday, May the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, I am delighted to welcome back Raphael Baer, political columnist, podcaster, and now author of a new book, Politics, A Survivor's Guide. Hi, Raphael. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, The last time you joined us, it was to talk about your podcast, Politics on the Couch, which also addresses politics as a kind of a mental health challenge, I suppose. So we're definitely seeing a theme here.
1: Yes, that podcast came about uh, in the pandemic, largely, but also as a result of me coming to the conclusion that it, it was increasingly hard to analyse politics without really thinking about the psychology and the underlying motives of the people who were having the most influence. And the book, uh, sort of by contrast, comes about because of, sort of my own realisation of the, the stresses that I come under as a result of writing about British politics in particular. But I think uh, those the forces that turned British politics incredibly toxic uh, have their Uh, analogous actions, you know, in other countries as well. Um, And so it was sort of more, to begin with at least, introspective diagnosis, thinking how did I let British politics sort of consume me in such a way as it was actually, I think, doing me harm? Uh, And would that diagnostic process illuminate some themes and some ideas that might actually be useful for a general reader to understand what
0: went wrong with British politics in recent years. Because it's important to state and it's uh, it, it kind of forms the opening part of the book to an extent uh, that you nearly died about three or four years ago. You had a really serious heart attack that could have killed you.
1: Uh, yes, uh, th- that's absolutely right. I was, uh, I mean, I'd actually been suffering from... Uh, angina for a number of years but hadn't diagnosed it or uh, had to, didn't i you know, just thought that was just what you know getting middle-aged felt like you know having burning crippling chest pain as you tried to do any exercise which was a bit naive uh, looking back on it but also denial and one of the themes in the book is that sense that you can have a system that is is Quite, quite fundamentally broken and all very profoundly diseased, as was the case with my cardiovascular system, but just carry on thinking, well, I'm sure it'll get better. I'm sure these obstructions will clear themselves. And I'm sure this difficulty we've all got breathing the air of politics might just pass and it's just a phase. Uh, and, and having, yes, what I believe is clinically known as a massive bloody heart attack, certainly forced me to confront the possibility that I had underestimated the scale of the challenge. Now, I should be clear, the book is not one enormous extended metaphor that turns my cardiovascular system uh, into the the body politic. That would be weirdly self-aggrandizing. But it, it was the the pivotal moment that made me realize uh, politics. You know, I had felt incredibly stressed at that time. It was the culmination of the the sort of Brexit battles in Parliament, uh, uh, and shortly after Boris Johnson had won the majority in twenty nineteen. In fact, it was New Year's Eve twenty nineteen to twenty twenty that I had the heart attack, and so. That sense that all the toxin of politics had allowed it to seep into my skin and really, yeah, you know, and and get me incredibly wound up and stressed. Uh, that was telling me something, not only about my own health, but actually about the state of British democracy.
0: So, I mean, I don't want to overextend the metaphor either, but I'm going to do it a, a little bit because, I mean, looking at your, your bunged up heart and the consequences of that, I mean, there are elements there. You you had a genetic predisposition to this. You weren't looking after yourself, right? And there was something going on in the world outside, which were all factors that led that led to this event. And in a way, you could say that about then the the political story you tell too; those three things are true.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think certainly, you know, there there was the immediate stress, the 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 sort of the hypertension, if you like, uh, caused by. Uh, the, the by Brexit and the fact that uh, if you remember 2016 to 2019 this was the period well who could forget uh when Parliament was really struggling failing in fact to enact the referendum because it couldn't really be done in a way that would satisfy anyone least of all the people who had voted to leave the EU um uh but of course the 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 polarization and the the the, the toxic atmosphere that that created in British politics didn't appear out of nowhere, because it turns out that Leave and Remain, those two votes on the two propositions of the referendum, came to describe culture war tribes. They came to delineate trenches uh, across British politics that really... Almost had very little to do with the, with the EU. The EU question became a proxy for a set of other grievances, whether it was to do with immigration or to do with having felt left behind by economic globalization, whether it was to do with resentment of young, mobile graduates, liberal elites uh, in, in the popular phrase, and uh, um, sort of being set up in opposition to older uh, people who'd felt, who had traditionally maybe voted for the Labour Party, but had felt abandoned by New Labour. All these things were swirling around. And then along came this referendum uh, and said, you must choose, you must align yourself with one of these two banners, and you must muster to that banner. Uh, And of course, to try and resolve all of that in a binary referendum question was ridiculous. And then to try and enact actual Brexit which is an incredibly technical thing and difficult to do in such a way as would create reconciliation between those those two tribes. Well, that was absurd. It was never going to happen. And as a result, British politics got into this state of simultaneous, constant turbulence and crisis, but also absolute paralysis and stasis. And that was what was really tearing people apart, people inside politics, uh, and also people looking at it from the outside thinking, I don't want any part of this.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I mean, you, you described very well the various kind of, um, I suppose, strands in UK society which led to that. But for you as somebody who I suppose by definition as a political correspondent and a political columnist were inside the bubble. How did that manifest itself in kind of human relationship terms, you know, in the Palace of Westminster, which is presumably where you were spending some of your time, or at least on the phone to people who were in the Palace of Westminster? Well,
1: one aspect of it, I think, in particularly in those parliamentary debates at that point where where the, the, the trench warfare over Brexit had got tangled up in in procedural issues and whether certain... Um, you know, whether the the order paper in the Commons was going to be seized by people to do impose things on the government, or whether the Ben Act was going to be uh, passed by a majority, all this stuff that you know I knew inside out. I couldn't necessarily recall all of, all of it off the top of my head now, but the how quite how deep we all got into the weeds of parliamentary procedure. Looking back on it w- was kind of ridiculous, but also symptomatic of a way in which political journalism had become a kind of a courtly pursuit. And there we were sort of in Versailles, really obsessing about what was going on at court and who was up and who was down and whether this vote was going to be passed by this number of of, of MPs from which side. And by definition, because we were looking inward at that, a lot of us, and this is even more true, I think, of, of the pre-referendum period, uh, and I meant a lot of people didn't really anticipate what was going to happen in 2016. We turned our backs on the actual country beyond and what the politics that we thought we knew all about. We prided ourselves on being incredibly au fait uh, and very savvy is the word I use about how politics really works. But the thing we were calling politics was not really the thing that was perceived by, by, by people outside in the rest of the country. So was, we were sort of incredibly... A sort of efficient in understanding something and then also incredibly ignorant of what that thing really meant for the country,
0: I think. So that um, revolution of those who felt themselves dispossessed against the system as it had developed over the previous uh, 20 years or so um was journalism complicit in that? You you do quote the the um, American media um, theorist Jay Rosen, who talks about the savvy style, as you say, which is a certain kind of a political journalistic style, which presumes a certain kind of nod and wink insiderism and uh, really disparages any kind of emotional attachment to a political point of view at all. It's a kind of a, it's a sort of a, um, uh, I suppose I'd describe it as a sort of a performative scepticism that can often end up as cynicism.
1: Yeah, well, I think there's two elements to this. One is that that wider problem of the savvy style in political journalism, which I think re- relies on an assumption that there are basic parameters of decency and there are democratic norms that everyone observes. So ultimately, you can organise your political commentary around the proposition of who's up, who's down. It's sometimes called horse race journalism, you know, who's ahead, who's, who's won by a nose. And you don't ever really have to take the step back and go, well, you know, it it is interesting that candidate X is ahead, uh, but if if that's someone like say Donald Trump or I would say Boris Johnson, they're different characters, but I think they are, they can be compared in some respects. It, it, it is interesting, but also there is you're now to have a sort of an ethical duty to wonder whether it is a good thing that they are getting ahead in the way that they are. If for, if for example, blatant lying is effective. In a political campaign, you can observe that, but I, I don't, and I don't know the answer to this. But at some point, you then have a duty to say, "Well, also, blatant lying is bad for democracy." If that works, and the fact that it works doesn't make it good. It's not just a winner-takes-all system. So that was that's one sort of cultural problem. And then I think very specifically in relation to Brexit, we had this issue where the European Union, how it works, why Britain joined it, what it actually even is, what the single market is, was not something that the most uh, this sort of well-briefed, well-connected Westminster journalists really understood or knew about it. It had never been their business. And a lot of things were said in that 2016 to 2019 period were given to journalists uh, you know, who were used to taking stories from their sources and were briefed out and written up as very serious, important political things that were nonsense, absolute nonsense, if you actually knew anything about the EU. and And I think a lot of the sort of... There was a kind of strange parochialism about Westminster journalism that meant people just took things for granted that were, if looking at it from Brussels, were just absurd. You know, Obviously, the German car industry wasn't just going to go and tell Angela Merkel to give the UK everything that it wanted, full access to the single market, but without freedom of movement. And an equivalent absurdity written up with regard to uk domestic politics would have been laughed off the front page no one would have dared no serious journalist would have dared say something equivalently stupid but they got away with it or, or even with regards to brexit because people didn't really understand the eu
0: yeah i mean that's i mean that's sort of fascinating one of the things that strikes me about that is that you know one of the reasons why so many people go so dissatisfied with the status quo and with and that um, largely contributed to the vote in 2016 was this you know post cold war analysis that everything was being run now by technocratic elites it didn't really matter which party it was they they had a shared set of assumptions they'd all been educated in the same place and implicit in that no matter how unsatisfying, you might find it, was the idea that these people knew what they were doing. And one of the things that the post-2016 period reveals to me, I think, is that they didn't know what they were doing.
1: Yeah, and, and certainly, and before that, it, I mean, you can say, well, what happened in 2007 and 8, the financial crisis, yeah. really was the moment when we ought to have uh, taken a step back and thought, well, how have... you know. How deep did we go into the complacency that we thought that post-cold War world you know the that's sometimes the well, that fukuyama that the theorist describes as the end of history he's sometimes sort of overinterpreted misinterpreted but the, the sense that somehow there, there was a new liberal democratic equilibrium around broadly liberal capitalist propositions and it was you just sort of tink around the edges to find the right balance between freedom and equality and everyone would be happy um and then that so there ought to have been a greater reckoning in 2007 and 8 when that economic model really wobbled on its axis uh, and the interesting thing specifically in the context of britain what then came out of that was the coalition government between the liberal democrats and the conservatives which had all the sort of surface apparatus of novelty it was a new form of government it was a change of government because you had new labor in power for um for a decade well 13 years uh, and but none of the sort of intellectual substance of radical departure from everything that had come before. So you had this tension between a, an illusion of a fresh start and actually just in, in ideological terms and in practical terms, when you had David Cameron and Nick Legg, who looked you know, from a distance pretty much like the same person, let's be honest.
0: And they both looked a little bit like Tony Blair as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so all the stylings, uh, you'd had a decade of professionalization of politics where I mean, every one of those people, really, I mean, who is a prominent, including in the opposition, you know, Ed Miliband, Ed Balls, David Cameron. uh, They'd all been special advisers. They'd all been parachuted into safe seats. uh, They were all part of a a sort of Westminster technocracy. And although it was possible, so if if you consider the fiscal policy austerity, for example, the George Osborne budget, uh, it isn't true, as the left of the Labour Party likes to allege that, the, the Ed Miliband and Ed Balls just went along with austerity. They really didn't. They opposed it and they made all sorts of Keynesian economic arguments against it, but not in a way that actually resonated for anyone else in the country. So the perception that basically they were all the same, uh, and you had three parties, two in coalition together, one which has still sort of lost its identity through through the New Labour years. Um, that that really the way I describe it in the book is it's like trying to follow a, a poker game in a vast sort of eighty thousand seat stadium. If you're sitting at the back, you just see some people hunched in the middle of, of you know of the stadium somewhere playing cards. You can't even see what their cards are. You don't that's not an interesting game. You don't understand the, the strategic judgments and the bluffs. It's just you, you you switch off. It's not something you can actually
0: engage with. When I look at the the British system, and to some extent the American system as well, which which bears some similarities with it, I I do find it interesting that when they get into trouble, they get into trouble in a certain kind of a way. And that, for example, the the fact that they privilege a binary political system where one side gets in and then the other side gets in and they make it very difficult for third or fourth or fifth parties to exist, um, creates a certain kind of a dynamic and we've seen both in the United States and the United Kingdom over the over the last few years a way in which that dynamic can get kind of stuck or it feels stuck in the past in some way. I even think I'm looking at the polls after the local elections in the UK last week and people are still talking about a swing and a swing implies there's only two involved. Whereas in fact, it's a kind of a three or a four or a five way split now when you take in the Lib Dems and Independence and Greens and SNP and all the rest of it. But the United Kingdom seems trapped in that in that binary past.
1: I think that's absolutely right and a really important observation. Uh, and and the one thing, you know, if I want to be self-critical about things that I called wrong in that twenty sixteen to nineteen period, a real peak of the of the Brexit. I mean, well, I should add that the book does yeah, brings us more up to date than that. But certainly around that time it really felt like the two party system was finally going to break apart because those remain and leave identities didn't sit neatly on the classic labor tory divide and actually the resilience of that two party model in england this is a very important caveat in england uh, was extraordinary that they sort of pinged back and by in 2019 after 2019 it looked like oh look we've got the old geopolia again but it's a, it's a, it's very illusory because actually One of the, and I think this is sort of very much what you've just described, one of the great myths of British politics is that we don't do coalitions. We don't want coalitions. I mean, apart from the fact that we literally had a coalition government not that long ago, but the current Conservative Party is a coalition between What used to be UKIP became the Brexit Party, essentially a nationalist movement, and the more traditional, classic, slightly more liberal, old-fashioned Conservative Party. It's just, they don't call themselves a coalition, it's just one has sort of absorbed the DNA of the other. Um, The Labour Party is a coalition between sort of liberal centre-left and more orthodox, classical Marxist-led socialists. Um, And... On top of that, you have a situation where more or less every time the British public are given an opportunity, the UK-wide public are given an opportunity to vote for other parties in a way that will actually have an impact. They do. I mean, in the 2019 European parliamentary elections, the, the Conservatives came sixth behind well, you know, the, the Brexit party, the Lib Dems, and the Brexit party were the two leading parties. The, the reason that the Scottish Nationalist Party runs Scotland is um, they they got their yeah you know, in their Westminster dominance, but they got there by way of a proportional representation elections that enabled them to take control of Holyrood. So you know it is, and this is a very English thing and a and a very mythological thing. This idea that somehow there is stability intrinsic in this two party system. The opposite is true. You repress the. Uh, the need to actually have an open debate about where are the compromises, what are the deals we can do, what are the legitimate deals we could do, and just to finish the point with regard to the most recent local election results, what you're seeing now this very week in British politics is a, I frankly ludicrous discussion about, you know, well this is very bad for Keir Starmer because it means he might be forced to do a deal with the Lib Dems, and you can keep asking him seven, eight, nine, ten times, would you do a deal with the Lib Dems, and think well. He's only going to answer it once and he doesn't know. And at some point, it's not inherently wicked to think that there might be a coalition. Uh, you can have good coalitions, bad coalitions, good governments, bad governments. And the fact that this is something that British politics still seems to think is, uh, is, is worthy of alarm in any way
0: it is infantile, frankly. I suppose I sort of understand why the conservatives do it because I can see the incentives. I think more strongly there because of where their vote their vote is focused in in England and they're able to maximise it in a certain way and they benefit from it. Speaking to you as somebody who's kind of on the on the centre left of the political spectrum, I think Labour have a lot to answer for for not for not taking the proposition for electoral reform more seriously.
1: I think that's very interesting. And yes, I, I agree. I do understand why. And, and it's a very self-interested reason. I mean, essentially, the reason Keir Starmer doesn't support, or you know, notionally doesn't support, proportional representation. I mean, he has done it in the past. He doesn't now. It's all a bit complicated. No one really knows exactly what he thinks, which is part of his problem. But anyway, um, it's for the simple reason that you know, under a more proportional system, it's quite easy to sort of war game the scenario where those two bits of the Labour Party, that are essentially a coalition, one being a socialist movement that rallied very strongly to Jeremy Corbyn when he was a leader, and the other being a more liberal centre-left movement that is barely distinguishable from the Lib Dems in most respects, become two parties. Uh, and in in a sort of more continental European system, they probably would be two parties. And it's not in Labour's interests, you know, the leadership Labour Party, to allow that to happen, especially when the existing system might offer them a route to power. And this is the great catch-22 of British politics, that the only way to actually reform the electoral system, which I would like to see happen eventually, um, uh, is to win an election by first-past-the-post, the the current system. And anyone who wins by that system immediately loses their incentive to to
0: change it. So it's a sort of a gerrymander, isn't it? It seems to me. There's an awful lot of people in the British system who don't end up with uh, political representation.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you live in a a safe seat, you know, you can where the votes just pile up and and the the old joke goes to the sort of a donkey in a blue or red rosette could win. Um, You don't feel very represented at all. And it's particularly interesting in regards to Brexit at the moment, because what it means uh, is... Although we now show, have quite consistent polling showing people thinking, well, actually very consistent polling showing people think Brexit was a bad idea and a mistake and quite a solid lump of people who would ideally reverse it. I mean, that's practically very difficult, but people don't like it. But in the seats that Labour have to take off the Tories to form a majority under the present electoral system, you have a lot of people who still feel quite strongly about Brexit and would be vulnerable to, or amenable rather, I should say, to a conservative message saying, Keir Starmer, slippery London, metropolitan lawyer, he's going to try and take your Brexit away from you and open the doors to uh, mass immigration. And so Labour are kind of snookered out of, just saying anything realistic or sensible about Brexit they just want to shut it down which means it's not part of the UK political debate which is madness because it's clearly the biggest thing that's happened in British politics in a generation.
0: And isn't the other factor underlying this the fact that the two um, large coalitions which you described the coalition of the Conservatives of um, I suppose you could call them national Conservatives or populists on the one hand and fiscal Conservatives and the pro-business side of the party on the other and then Labour the coalition between urban liberals on the one hand and people who used to be called trade unionists or working class heartland Labour voters on the other both those coalitions have fractured and fallen apart really or at least there's all kinds of tensions between them that weren't there 20 or 30 or 40 years ago.
1: Yeah with the Labour one it's interesting because I think there's a much deeper longer breakdown in that coalition because uh, essentially the, the organised labour and the structures of organised labour gave a lot of people a sense of uh, esteem and agency in their communities, in those places that, you know, in America they call the Rust Belt. And it's an effective enough metaphor to describe the places that were really hollowed out uh, by Thatcher-era economic reforms in the 1980s, the former coal mining towns uh, that uh, swung first behind Brexit, and then Brexit was... Sort of crudely speaking, the kind of gateway drug to then voting for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, uh, and people thought that was a major realignment, but the, the, it might not have been after all. But the forces that were building to to, and these were people who would very very instinctively have voted Labour because it was a, a badge of of identity, and it was very hard for them to to ever think about voting for someone else. But you know there are the, the the sort of the cultural apparatus that sustained that as a movement in the country was corroded over a generation. Uh, and then separately, you have people coming of age, going to university, uh, moving to the cities, acquiring very liberal views, uh, who are na- now Labour's actual activist base that what it turns out we saw in Brexit don't have an awful lot in common with all of what had previously been the Labour Party's sort of uh, raison d'etre politically.
0: Although that's not an exclusively British phenomenon. I mean, there are, you know, what used to be communist strongholds in French cities are now the places that vote for Marine Le Pen. Absolutely. And it's, and you know, it,
1: it, well, it, you saw it in going all the way back to the sort of the Reagan Democrats mm. uh, who 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 voted for Ronald Reagan, but had previously always been the industrial base uh, of the Democratic Party. And look, I think, you know, some of these things can be overstated to the extent that you know, ultimately, everyone, well, not everyone, but most people will think want an NHS that works. Uh, the wage stagnation that has caused a lot of frustration and anger in British politics is felt across the, you know, the income distribution, apart from at the very, very top. Uh, and certainly what Keir Starmer is banking on is that uh, enough people just think it's time for a change of government and the, their reasons for feeling that are a, a much broader cultural sense that Britain just doesn't work anymore. The place has just been degraded and it's falling apart. And the reason for that is we've had you know 13 years of conservative government and it's time for something different. And I think... He's probably right enough about that that he will probably be the next Prime Minister.
0: I should say that the book is not primarily about the the sort of structures and the systems of of, of politics which we've been talking about. And I want to um, go a little bit more into the kind of psychological and emotional parts of it. I'm going to take a quick break, first of all, and just to remind you that, uh, should you be so inclined, you can sign up as a subscriber to irishtimes.com at the not surprising URL of irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Raphael Bear is is still here with me. Raphael, I was I was reading your book over the weekend, and at the same time as I was reading it, I was looking out of the corner of my eye at the coronation of King Charles the Third on the television. And I have to tell you that from an Irish perspective, when you look at these things, I mean, we're in a strange position vis-a-vis you guys. You know, we know you so well, um, but you still seem a bit strange. And you seemed particularly strange last weekend. And I was trying to reconcile the society with the various pressures and um, tensions which, which you describe in the book, with this thing I was looking at on the telly and failing, I wonder, can you help me?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I, I frankly, I, I share some of that bafflement uh, to the extent that um, the the coronation and all things to do with monarchy in this country, I think, contain a huge contradiction. And that that this goes really to to the very heart of it, which is that they are simultaneously uh, trivial because they are about pageantry and entertainment largely, Uh, and I think in some respects really speak to a a, a craving for anything that would be a moment of of collective experience. Because actually, British people are are divided in many respects, and so they, they 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 are about gesture and performance. But it is also the case that the king is the head of the Church of England. and you know, The core of that coronation ceremony was his anointing with holy oil, which imbues him with a divine spirit, uh, in theory, uh, to, to, to reign more justly. Uh, and also, still constitutionally, you know, the crown has immense powers, it, it you know, signs laws into effect. I mean, it's all jurisdictional, notionally. But let's not forget that there was that moment, remember, um, when Boris Johnson got fed up with the fact that parliament kept voting against him uh, over Brexit and he prorogued parliament. Uh, and he just said, actually, let's just, dissolve this the tedious assembly. Now, this is something that if it happened in any other country, it wouldn't, uh, there would be no hesitation in people saying this is an absolute outrage. This is an affront to democracy. This person is behaving like a despot because that's what despots do. They dissolve parliament but because it's Britain and we have this very deep rooted sense that, you know, you know, the Commons it is the mother of parliaments and democracy is somehow and is in our lifeblood. That, that you know, Somehow it, it wasn't as bad as all that. And the power that he was using then was a crown power. He had that. You know, that was a royal prerogative that he was arrogating. He basically got the crown out of the House of Commons dressing up box and wielded it as a weapon against the political opposition. And he was able to do that because you know, the Constitution actually allows him to do it because we are so in many ways so complacent about the habits and the culture of democracy that we didn't really stop to consider whether or not those habits and those culture have endured into the third decade of the 21st century
0: so yeah so there's there's something going on there which seems to me to be quite intrinsic to british or more specifically to english culture and, you know, Boris Johnson in a way is the sort of, is the sine qua non of, of this to an extent. I mean, you write about your time at, at, at university in the 1990s and you, um, you you talk about the sort of the class divisions there, these sort of um, bread for power public school boys who land in with a complete sense of entitlement to uh, to everything and one of those would have been Boris Johnson, although I think he would have been there a few years before you and, you know, that's combined with a sort of an ironization of everything Everything's really a laugh. Everything shouldn't be taken too seriously. There's a sort of a um, a, a, de- a deeply unwell approach to authority and running a country properly. There isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple
1: of things sort of bundled together here. I mean, one is the the, the, the concept that that, that Peter Hennessy famously called the "good chaps" theory of government. That we this idea that somehow uh, you know Britain operates because a certain everyone. of of a certain kind of breeding and a certain kind of education is so steeped in an intuitive sense of what is proper uh, that you don't need to write down the rules. And actually there, you know, it's it's a sort of a variation of the kind of noblesse oblige concept, but it comes out of the the public school system. Uh, And the remarkable thing about Boris Johnson is you you couldn't have genetically engineered a a sort of a machine or a person better at test, stress testing that content, because he had all of the external manifestations of a good chap. I mean, he spoke in the right accent, he had the right colour skin, he went to the right school and the right university. Uh, and I think that gave him this camouflage uh, to, 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 to conduct a huge fraud on British democracy in plain sight. And I think it's very interesting that I don't think anyone you know, that could have got away with uh, his performance, the shtick that he did, the sort of end of peer pastiche Churchillian thing, the self-deprecating, the wink at the audience that says, well, you, you know, we all know I'm kind of making this up. But if you're in on the joke, you're laughing with me, uh, then we can all just sort of bumble along together. I don't think someone who didn't have his accent, his styling, his background would have got away with that. And that's, I think, sadly, a, a legacy of class deference and all sorts of interesting things in, in English. And you're right to say English as opposed to British, I think, political culture. Uh, that there still hasn't yet yet been a been a proper uh, appraisal of, uh, and then and that sort of glibness, as you say, uh, meant that we got much deeper into the, a crisis than I think you know, we would have done if there'd been a more sort of realistic understanding of what are the qualifications that you should have to uh, hold a serious job. And and I think Johnson's downfall, just to finish this point, uh, was that actually with the party gate staff, uh, and when you know, people realised. Everyone who'd known him personally knew all along, which is everything he says is a lie, um, <laughs> almost everything. Uh, the, the switch there was suddenly he, you know, the people who were laughing with him felt that he was laughing at them because they'd obeyed the rules and he hadn't. Uh, and then suddenly the, the, sort of the, the clown's grin looked like a nasty sneer. But it was the same face all along. He hadn't changed.
0: So the question really is, what propelled him from what would have been his natural milieu, which is the opinion pages of the Tory press or comedy panels on BBC chat shows, into number 10 Downing Street? I I don't think that would have happened previously. So what changed in the British electorate and the British mentality that allowed that to happen?
1: Well, I think, I mean, part of it goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about the way Westminster political journalism works, actually. I don't want to overstate our responsibility for this, but but the, this idea that you can treat politics as a parlour game uh, and the person with the best lines or the you know, best sort of panel show appearance has, or has you know, earned some kind of qualification to do these top jobs it, it, it is at fault. But also, bluntly, I just think, you know, I remember a very interesting conversation I had with a, a conservative MP in the summer of 2019 when Theresa May had resigned and Boris Johnson was the uh, the lead candidate. And a lot of conservative MPs at that point were saying uh i'll do anything within my power to stop him he's he's morally not entitled to do this job he has to be kept away from it and then interestingly as it looked like he was going to win they all suddenly switched because their self-interest and their ambition was going to be fulfilled you know lots of people either kidded themselves that oh well he he will need sensible good people like me on the side to keep him honest you know as which meant also that they got to keep cabinet jobs um uh but anyway, so I to finish the anecdote, I saw a Conservative MP who was supporting Boris Johnson in Portcullis House in Westminster, annexed to the Commons, uh, and I said, "Look, you're just you just you're just desperate now, aren't you? I mean, this is your absolute hail Mary pass. You have no idea how this is going to work out. You just think you might be able to, you might win, and he doesn't really believe in anything." As a challenge, expecting this person to say, "No, you're wrong. You've misjudged him. Actually, there's a cunning plan here, and that he's much more sensible, and it's all just a show." And you just wait and see. But in fact, this person said. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean that—that—that's what it came down to. That's all there was. And I think crucially, because there were so many contradictions about Brexit itself, and it was impossible to do well or in in a way that would satisfy all the people who'd voted for it, he—the contradictions in him—he was the kind of incarnation of Brexit, the spirit of it, that you could have your cake and eat it, that you didn't need to take it all seriously, that people who pointed out hard things were just killjoys. Uh, those two things were perfectly suited for that moment
0: The subtitle of your book is um, How to Stay Engaged Without uh, Getting Enraged I was listening to a to a podcast that you were on um, a few weeks ago, it was a New Statesman podcast with sort of a number of different generations of New Statesman political journalists talking about their experiences at the at the magazine, which, as listeners might know, is is the sort of the the main left of centre political magazine in the in the United Kingdom. And of course, you know, they had very different experiences, and as always happens when journalists gather, there were fond reminiscences of very long boozy lunches and 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 things like that. But I I did find it interesting too the way that the job has changed for various people over the years and you were there for a while and there were people who succeeded you. Um, Whatever about the merits of the long boozy lunches uh, and they do sound like they were fun, I didn't get get any of them at all. Um, The the modern context when you talk about being engaged or being enraged inevitably brings up the question of the 24-hour news cycle, the interaction with social media, both for politicians and for journalists and how much that has transformed the political landscape and contributed to engagement and enragement?
1: Yeah, I certainly think you know, it's easy to over-catastrophize the role that social media has played in the state of politics and democracy just because, or at least the necessary corrective is that people have said equivalent things by every medium that's ever come along. So people complained about, at one point people thought novels were corrupting the minds of young women and the radio was doing the same and then television. So with that caveat aside, I do think social media has done something fundamentally different. And part of it is, Uh, just a sheer acceleration of the news cycle. Uh, That means almost every moment of the day, if all the journalists and all the politicians are glued to Twitter, is a kind of rolling referendum on what matters most. And it's a rolling referendum on what matters most with an electorate of self-selecting people who also want to be very engaged on Twitter, which is not the actual country and not the real people. And uh, on top of that, you have platforms that, by their very architecture really uh amplify all the biases we know the sort of psychological biases we know that that, that can send people into more radical positions into more polarized positions so uh you, you know you you furnish your own information silo with opinions and facts in fact that will reinforce your existing prejudice and you will try and block out the things that give you data and information that might make you uncomfortable by telling you something you don't want to hear. Or if you do see the things that make you uncomfortable, they will be presented to you by someone who agrees with you saying, behold, this absolute nonsense. This is all rubbish. You you can ignore this because this person is an idiot. So even though we are seeing more sources of information, it's being presented to us in a way that is designed to accelerate us into a more radical position and and that polarizes politics. And actually, I don't think I mean, one of the points I make in the book, you know, most people I know in the analog world are capable of holding contradictory thoughts in the same at the same time, capable of friendships with people who disagree with them, are capable of being very reasonable and moderate. And if that's true of me, and I'm sure it's true of you, uh, and it's probably true of almost everyone listening to this podcast, well, what makes us think it's not true generally? And the answer is because the actual, you know, the the space that we are exposed to where politics is debated, certainly in the U.K., doesn't reflect that at all. It, it reflects the, the fringes or an, an idiom of political debate that is drawn from the fringes, and that's actually not as representative as a lot of people seem to make it
0: appear. I think people are people in the world of politics are are, are starting to understand that, but there is a, a there is a an even more serious consequence, which is that the level of abuse we certainly see this here in Ireland, and and I know you do in the UK, the level of abuse that politicians and in fact political journalists as well are frequently described as you know liars and. Shills for whatever political party somebody's opposed to gets so poisonous that that one can, I think, safely draw a connection between that sort of discourse and some of the horrible attacks that we've seen on politicians um, around the world and in the UK.
1: Yeah, I certainly worry that there is a normalization of the most aggressive and violent kind of rhetoric. That at, at least. You know, I, I don't know what, exactly how causal the link is, but it seems to legitimize a way of interacting with people in public life uh, you know, that you know it, it's not hard to imagine how someone who's a little bit unhinged would take that you know up to the point of of actually carrying out a vicious attack and and, and that has happened and i I worry that there is a, a common sort of psychological conveyor that goes on there, which is um a feeling that politics is them alien to us we the people uh and uh the the people the, the the sort of the media who are reporting on that are in all sorts of cultural and social ways closer to them than to us so they are basically uh, abetting they are enablers of the great lie that is the public sphere uh, and not to be trusted uh, and therefore i need to sort of go to alternative sources and i need to get the truth elsewhere uh, and then in that that by that process a kind of conspiracy theory mode of thinking really starts to permeate the whole of the mainstream. And then politicians see that as a resource, as a, as a kind of political energy to tap into. And you see it's a little bit happening now in, 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 British, in English conservatism. Now that the Tories are on the ropes a little bit, a, a, the way they frame political debate about you know there are elites that are against you and the Remainers are sort of agitating against Brexit, uh, it, it starts to sound a lot like kind of essentially conspiracy theory that you know we're trying to deliver for the people, but there's this sinister network that's just thwarting your will. And that is incredibly dangerous because that really sort of corrodes the fibres that connect the voters to the people being elected. And then you can still have elections, but what we don't actually have is a kind of a civic culture that makes those elections satisfying to the people who vote
0: in them. And that's essentially the core appeal of populism, isn't it? Is that you, the people, are having the wool pulled over your eyes and you're being robbed by uh, filling the gap for whatever elite you want to describe there.
1: And the great lie of populism, because the, the lie of populism is that there is a will of the people that a politician, ideally a very charismatic one, uh, can embody. And that if you if that person, if having a sort of quasi-mystical capacity to channel the will of the people, uh, can get what they want done, then everyone will be satisfied. But the reality of po- what politics actually is, and this is a point I make early on in the book, because I think it's very important, what politics is at heart is a mediation of incompatible interests and a negotiation between incompatible interests in order that people don't end up fighting each other. I mean, that's basically why you have democracy. So people go they go to parliaments, they are represented. Now, ultimately, the if, if the people who want affordable homes in new places and the people who want who don't want those homes built in their backyard aren't going to agree that, that where the homes should go. And you need a mediating process that goes on. And what the populist says is, no, th- those contradictions don't exist. It's just about pure will and the right person driving things through. And then we don't need to worry about how complicated it is. And as soon as you're in the business of denying complexity, you're never going to get solutions that work. And if you're never going to get solutions that work, you're going to very quickly get into the hunt for traitors and saboteurs and fifth columnists who have betrayed the people, because that's the only avenue you've got left for you.
0: So people won't be surprised to hear that the book is ultimately, in my view anyway, it's a rallying call for understanding complexity, for empathy, for other human beings, recognizing that they're human beings and not just avatars and social media. And it's also, um, I think it's um, it's a rallying cry for centrism, not usually something one hears an awful lot. You don't see thousands of people streaming down the streets shouting, shouting for centrism. Maybe that's the problem with centrism, is it?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I mean, the problem is centrism is incredibly hard to define because you know, the center does move. I mean, where the center of British politics is now, as a sort of you know, position, equi- if you was wanted, if you want to describe it, and I wouldn't define it this way as a position equidistant between whatever the leader of the Labour Party and the leader of the Conservative Party say at any given moment, that's clearly going to be different now to where it was in 1979 when Margaret Thatcher was leader uh, of the Conservative Party. Um, so. Uh, and Labour were going out of government. Callaghan, government, was, was on his way out. So you know, there is a problem there In if you just say centrism is whatever works to tactically get enough people in the middle ground to vote for you, that's a position that's not anchored in any kind of moral judgment about what should happen. But I think there's a different way of looking at it, which is an ethos of moderation that uh, recognises enough of the legitimacy in the arguments of people on the other side that you have a duty to accommodate it and to find the balance between the empathy that says, look, I think, yeah, you know, so with regard to Brexit or any other quite radical proposition, I might, might not agree with these people. I might think that what, what they're proposing is wrong, but that doesn't mean I don't have a duty to understand the grievance and the, the motive that has driven them to make this choice uh, and consider that as an entirely legitimate political proposition. And as soon as I do that, then whatever ideological view I have that is alien to them, I also have to let go a little bit. And so I see centrism more in that context as not dogma and ideology as opposed to a position on the left-right spectrum.
0: Because, I mean, there's two ways, I mean, as you've kind of said there, there's two ways of approaching centrism. Let's say if you're coming from, from the left, from the Labour Party, centrism is an electoral strategy to get enough votes to get into power, or centrism is a commitment to a certain way of doing politics. Uh, uh, a sort of an idealistic commitment. I suppose you could you you could argue that it's it's always both. But one of the criticisms of Keir Starmer is that he doesn't seem to have the sort of commitment to that kind of, for want of a better word, radical centrism that maybe the New Labour project had back in the nineties.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a fair criticism of him. I, I think my, my frustration with Keir Starmer in that is exactly that. I think that he doesn't seem to be making an argument uh, about about why he's why it's necessary to make some of the compromises he's making. Uh, he he, it is almost so it comes across almost exclusively as a kind of bloodless electoral tactic uh, disconnected from what the actual principles were. Whereas I think there is an argument to be made in British politics that, that says, you know, we are not going to be able to actually he can deliver the economic progress we want, uh, let alone sort of reunite the country unless we move a little bit back towards a politics of solidarity, because of uh, rehabilitate some of the more social democratic politics that hasn't been in fashion in Britain for a long time, that actually I think there is a tremendous appetite for. And you've seen that both in regard to uh, support for the health service, but also even on the conservative side. Even Boris Johnson was actually sounding quite social democratic in some respect when he talks about the need for the state to actually intervene more, to invest in in industry and and rebuild, levelling up, he called it. But that's ultimately a more centre left proposition than anything the conservative party has actually done in government in all the 13 years it's been in power, 12 13 years it's been in power so you know in that sense that's not centrism as electoral tactic that's saying well look the, the pendulum just went way too far one way and it's left people feeling poorer and angrier maybe it's about time it went back the other way and i don't it's, it frustrates me that Keir Starmer doesn't seem able to articulate that argument even though i think he probably believes that
0: there's that sort of axis which you describe between halfway between wherever the Labour Party leader of the day is and where the Conservative Party leader of the day is. That has tended historically to be viewed largely economically, but there's a, I think it's a quadrilateral axis. Maybe I'm wrong here. That is often used to look at look at politics as well, which looks at social conservatism versus social liberalism on one axis and economic um, uh, left right on on the other and. Um, I, I don't know where we stand on the what you might call, I suppose, the culture war axis, and how does that all fit? Because the Conservatives seem to be playing it very hard. Labour seems more unsure.
1: Yeah, and again, I think that slightly comes down to this problem that we mentioned earlier uh, in terms of the electoral system that means the, that there are what what a very senior Labour strategist calls the sort of hero voters, the ones whose votes count way more than anyone else's. And they happen to be very socially conservative uh, quite amenable to this conservative argument about the, the essentially uh, woke lefty activism seizing the commanding heights of the culture uh, and imposing their values that aren't actually the mainstream values of the country. Uh, and and therefore, the Labour Party doesn't really want to go to that place. And also, I think there is a, a perfectly good reason for the Labour Party to say that we'd much rather talk about schools and hospitals. Um, and I think there is, again, an extent to which the salience of those culture war issues, whether it's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of argument online and offline about, for example, trans rights in, in conflict with uh, the, what's called the gender critical feminist position, uh, but but, but uh, you know, all sorts of other things as well. And they generate an enormous amount of heat, particularly on social media. There isn't a whole lot of evidence that they're really mobilizing people. Uh, to go to the ballot box. no actually... I take
0: that point, but there's a, there's an interesting phenomenon, isn't there? Yes, the opinion polls do show that that trans rights, which are very important to a, a relatively small number of people, don't actually animate people to go and vote. but you see both in the United Kingdom and in the United States um that that parties of the right, that conservatives are either ignoring that or they don't believe it because they're you know they're doubling down on it.
1: Well, yeah, and there, it certainly had an impact, I think, that particular issue uh, in Scotland when I mm. think the, the Nicola Sturgeon got on the wrong side where she thought that the ma- mainstream opinion was somewhere and it turned out to be somewhere else uh, with regard to that particular issue. I think, and again here, the, the the bit of the book where I deal with this, I think the argument I I hope I made, it's quite a quite tricky argument to make that I think it's very important, is it's not so much the specific issue that is salient because, yeah, A lot of people don't care about that stuff. But what is very animating and powerful is the kind of politics that fuses with people's sense of identity Uh, and what I call the sort of the sacred issues. And yes, I think conservatives have historically been much better at speaking to those sort of sacred values that really mobilize people. Um, And so and and the left, by contrast, tends to speak a slightly more technocratic language about redistribution and justice and things that feel quite abstract. And and an example, a good example of this is um, gun laws in the US. If you're looking at it from the outside, from Europe, you think, well, it's madness. Clearly, if you sell automatic weapons in supermarkets, you're going to have more murders committed with guns. And the answer is to just make it harder to buy weaponry that, that kills people. And it's baffling as to why that is so hard to get that argument across, in, 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 in why the mainstream U.S. debate is so far removed from that. And the answer is because enough people have associated guns with the Second Amendment, with their sense of patriotism and identity, that when they hear a Democrat or someone say, we need to reform gun laws, what they actually hear is, I hate America. Uh, and and that is a very that's not a minor niche issue that's literally the biggest issue you can have in 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 a lot of politics and I think that's definitely true in a lot of these other issues that once something gets fused and it was true for Brexit as well you could you know, the argument about whether or not it was a good idea to leave the single market was a technical one. The argument about should Britain be a free country that decides its own future and its own destiny was about your sense of belonging and your sense of identity. And I think the left often gets that wrong, uh, particularly on the sort of more cultural warrior side of the left where they start saying, well, the flag, rep- the union flag represents atrocities and racism and all these things. You know, If you say that, you've got to expect that an awful lot of people who don't spend all their time absorbing history of empire and terrible things that were done under that flag, just here. I hate Britain. And if they hear that, they're not going to vote for you. So
0: we find ourselves now in this sort of hangover period after that absolutely intense five or six years of post-Brexit. Um, these um, unusual figures, let's put it that way, like Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn have I think, to part departed the political stage. You're never 100% sure with Boris Johnson, but I think we, 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 we'll presume that. And now you're left with these slightly dull, rather unconvincing, much more centrist um, technocrats, really, uh, who don't really demand the full-throated support of either of their parties, I get the impression, um, but they're prepared to go along with them for the moment. This feels like an interregnum to me. I don't know what do you think.
1: That is my instinct as well. Unfortunately, I, I very much wish uh, someone, one of Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak, I mean, I'm not a Conservative voter or supporter, as is probably clear. But uh, if someone had the the charismatic capability to turn that more, more centrist proposition into something that would animate and excite people. Uh, I think you would have a a better chance of really shifting the dial and changing the tone of of British politics. I I worry that exactly as you say, we're in a position where the next parliament could be one where, particularly if the conservatives are in opposition and no longer bound by any sense of responsibility to say things that would be effective in government. uh, You could have a a weak centrist government besieged on both sides by cultural wars uh, and this period of relative calm will will start to will give way to something equally uh, sort of as turbulent as we've had before but that said you know, predicting what happens in British politics at the moment is an absolute mugs game.
0: I mean, there is something, though, isn't there, about politics, which maybe political scientists don't pay enough attention to, but which we've definitely seen over the last while, which is politics is a form of entertainment. And in fact, increasingly in the world that we live in, the worlds of politics and entertainment tend to blur, as we've seen with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and, uh, and a few other figures as well. And political parties or political movements underestimate that, that part of that, the potency of that at their peril. I think it's certainly one of Keir Starmer's biggest weaknesses
1: uh, is that he doesn't look like he enjoys it. And I think that's a real problem. I and mean, maybe he does enjoy it privately or he likes, he finds obviously he finds politics very interesting. He definitely wants to be prime minister. But I think to really succeed as a leader in British politics, you need to have that quality that when the light, when a limelight falls on you, you bask in it. And whereas Keir Starmer, he always looks like he's kind of in that bright glare. He's reaching for the factor 50. He's worried he's going to get sunburned. And he, he, he flinches a bit from the attention. Uh, and people can smell that immediately. And, and I think that that is one of the things that's holding back his personal ratings. It's holding back that connection uh, with other
0: people. Just one, one last question, Raphael. Are you, um, are you sick of politics or do you hold out hope for it? Because the, the book starts with you literally being sick of politics getting sick in in part at least because of politics and the the implication is that that there is some kind of a toxicity that seeps out um from politics to to the rest of us but you're still a political columnist you've just written a large book about columnists uh, about politics i mean what do you feel about the future of politics in the united kingdom now
1: If I'm sick of anything, it is the smallness of politics. That's what worries me most. The the, the sort of the parochialism, particularly around Westminster, the the difficulty we seem to have in this country, but I think it's true elsewhere as well, in actually having the conversations that, that need to be had. You know, how are you going to fund a health service that people expect at a certain standard when people are getting older, but no one wants to raise their taxes. You know, it's not everyone knows that's the question, but that is not going to be the debate at the next election, and that I find very frustrating. Isn't it partly
0: though that the answer is so bloody complicated because we have exactly the same debates here, and they they end up a little bit like your your metaphor of the poker player who's kind of five hundred metres away and you can't see what's going on
1: yeah although i do think you know it's always possible that that some uh, the great communicators are able to to cut through that and you know there are there are times when uh, you know i think as we found in the pandemic actually when there is sufficient will and consensus to just do something and get behind certain things actually mm. things can happen quite quickly uh, and al- although you know you can people argue around the margins the story of the pandemic broadly speaking was in the western world a tremendous success where in an extraordinary period of time very less than a year a vaccine was produced and given to lots of people and so you know things either you know, are possible although that's kind of practically wartime circumstances and my my concern i suppose is that and this is you know, actually the book is quite optimistic. I should say to people, it's quite an optimistic book in many respects, but the, the, the bleaker bit of it is the worry that there was a, you know, a sort of middle of the 20th century, a post second world war consensus about what decent normal demo, liberal democratic politics looked like. Uh, and that there was a huge heap of moral capital in terms of for the system that we've just been spending and spending and spending. And we, we've it's sort of run out of road that system now. And, we might have to relearn a lot of hard lessons that we learned in the first half of the 20th century the hard way. And I really don't want that to be true. But that's my that's my gravest concern at the moment.
0: Raphael Bear's book is called Politics, A Survivor's Guide. It's published by Atlantic Books. I think it's safe to say it's in shops now, is it, Raphael? It is very much in shops now. Okay, so go ahead and get it. Thanks very much to Raphael for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Collin and to our engineer, JJ Vernon. That's it from us for today. We will be back on Friday with our wrap. But until then, thanks very much for listening.